0: Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, Lead Pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. I want to ask this morning, if any of you have ever fallen asleep in an inappropriate place? like a place where sleeping shouldn't be happening, you have fallen asleep there. Perhaps it was in a meeting. You know, when you get into these, these long-winded meetings and your boss is on like hour three and uh, you know, your eyes close and they just close for an extended period of time. Uh, maybe you were sitting at your desk uh, in the office or maybe you were at the movies or maybe even for some of you right here in church, and I know that's true. You can't lie to me because I've watched some of you do it. I've sat and watched some of you as you closed your eyes and didn't open them again until I was like three verses on in my message. And, and, uh, and eventually, you know what's the worst thing is that some of you open your eyes again and immediately you shout, Amen. You have no idea what I was even saying. But you just wanted to show that you're still with us, right? and so i can't actually judge too harshly this morning because i myself have on occasion fallen asleep in church right um i remember one specific occasion which is probably one of my most embarrassing moments ever which is where I was a pastor, I was a youth pastor. I sat in a reserved seat in front of a a church that had several thousands of members. And so, you know, I'm right up there, the lights, I'm in the lights, I'm not in the back in the dark or anything, and uh, I sit on the front, I I sat in the front left hand, if you're facing the stage, front left hand corner, and I was on that corner seat right on the aisle. And uh, at one point, I fell asleep so much during a message that I fell off my chair. I'm not kidding. This is, this actually happened. My brother was there next to me. Um, In my defense, I had just returned from a three-day youth camp that I was leading um, with about 500 teenagers. You think it's hard looking after your three teenagers? I had 500 for three days. All right. So it, it, it was a miracle that I was actually still alive after all of that. And so after all the madness and And, uh, you know, they're running around, not sleeping for about a week. Um, Before that, I'm now sitting in a Sunday evening service and the pastor's going long. Right. He's enjoying this. He's, you know, he's gone into cruise mode. He's just like, you know, he's drawing out. He's doing an illustration for every verse of that scripture, you know. And, uh, And I'm sitting there and I'm hurting. I am hurting. I'm like, Jesus, make it stop. I can't go on. Maybe some of you, hopefully none of you have been there here at Anchor Church, but but it, it was hard. And so, you know, when your eyes close and you kind of nod off and you catch yourself, that is happening to me. Now, I've always marveled at this. I've always marveled that we as human beings can come to a place in life where we know that falling asleep would be detrimental to our very lives. You know, like, for example, when you're driving, you're driving on the highway doing, uh, you know, 120 because you shouldn't break the speed limit and you're driving 120 and you know, if I close my eyes now, I might die, along with everybody else in the car. But yet, you still close your eyes. And you can't keep yourself from doing it. I, I, I think about uh, that, that, that time in the book of Acts that's recorded where somebody was sitting in the window of the third story. And Paul's preaching. Paul's going long. And he knows, if I fall asleep now, I'm going to die. He falls asleep and he died. Paul had to raise him from the dead. Fortunately, Paul was there. Because <laughs> he got to raise him from the dead. And I knew as a youth pastor, if I fall off the seat in the middle of the service while the pastor's preaching, I might die. I might be dead that next Monday. But yet I couldn't stop myself. And on about the third occasion, my eyes closed long enough that I actually fell far enough that I fell off my chair and I landed on the ground, kind of like Spider-Man coming off of a moving train, you know, like you catch yourself like, I'm good. And I looked up in that position. I shouldn't have looked up. They made it worse because now I made eye contact with people and I could see the laughter or whatever. And I, I, I turned to my brother was sitting next to me. I said to him, I'm just going to go and, and just go and lie down in my office for like five minutes, which was risky business in the church I was in. You don't leave a service in the middle of the pastor's message. but, But I was like, I got to do this. And so I went to my office, which was just off the main auditorium and and uh, we had just ordered some t-shirts for our youth, and the t-shirts had arrived, and they were nice and neatly wrapped, compactly wrapped in, in, a, in some plastic on the ground. I was like, that's a perfect pillow. It's exactly what I needed. The Lord has provided, and I switched off the light. I lay down, and the moment my head hit the t-shirts, I was gone, but like gone, gone. You see, the thing is, is that the noise was still there, the, the lights were full blast in the church when I was falling asleep while I was sitting on the edge of that seat. When you know, you know the pastor was still preaching full blast, everything was still there, but I was becoming dead to it. I was I was it was no longer filtering through. And when I lay down there, it didn't matter how loud church was outside my office door. I personally was dead to it. I was gone. And so I woke up a little bit later. I didn't know how long it had, you know, how much time had transpired since the time I had gone in there. But three things were different. The first thing is the lights that I had turned off were now on. So somebody had been in there while I was asleep. The second thing is it was raining now and it wasn't raining when I went there. And the third thing is I could hear cars driving and obviously it was quiet when I went to the office. So the service was clearly over. And so I was still in a bit of a daze and I wanted to see how you know, how much time it transpired, where are we at in the running of the service here? And so I put my head out the door, but right past my office, it's one of the exits for the church. And so people are filtering past. And at that exact moment, my brother was coming down the aisle from the other side. And uh, and I put my head out and somebody came around the corner. And apparently what happened is, because I don't really remember it, I think I was still half asleep, but somebody said to me, oh, hey, Adrian. My brother says this was the best moment ever because all I did was I slowly retracted my head back again and closed the door. So that's how you know that you are properly asleep. And there are people like that that can sleep through almost anything, right? A tank could come driving through their wall in the middle of the night and they'll only find out about it the next day. Come on, hands up if you're one of those people. Like you sleep like the dead, right? You need Jesus to raise you every morning when you get up out of bed. You can't just do it by yourself. And so we have uh, people that are like this, that, that just are absolutely dead to the world beyond whatever is happening in their, in their minds while they're sleeping. And so as we go into Ephesians 5, Paul is actually speaking about people, about a world that is... Asleep at the wheel, a world that has become completely shut off to the voice of God to the purposes of God, to the truth of God, to His plan for their lives, to the love of God, to the power of God that is available to them, to this meaningful, um, substantial, fulfilled, satisfied life that they're meant to live. There is a world that we are a part of, that we live in, that, that is completely oblivious to the truth of who God is and what He has for them and the bible describes them as asleep as asleep as dead to the to the things of god as 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 cut off they are unaware of what's happening around them more than that they're unaware of what's happening within them as they go through life they have no awareness Of the truth, no light that shines on their condition to reveal what's happening in their hearts and and, and how sin has taken a hold of them and how their pursuits are almost exclusively self centered. They have no idea. They've begun to celebrate the broken parts of their lives because there is no light to wake them up. They're completely asleep and unaware and cut off and then in some strange form of spiritual schizophrenia, is what I'll call it, we as believers, as ones who are no longer dead, but have been made alive with Christ, who have been made new, we somehow, for some strange reason, imitate them. We imitate the sleepers. We, we become like them, we follow them, we adopt their culture, we, we, we live the way they live. It's like driving in a convoy, following a lead car, but the person in the lead car is fast asleep. We're all going to die in this scenario. We're all going to leave the road or the path that we're on when we follow those that are asleep. And so Jesus actually speaks about this in one of his parables in Luke 6, in verse 39. And it says, it says, he also told them a parable. And he asked them this question. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Does that sound like a good setup? When blind people lead blind people, will they not both fall into a ditch? Now, we've got to look at where we're taking our cues from where we're taking our leadership from, who we're listening to, what voices we're allowing to shape our identity, our culture, our way of living because we can so easily adopt secondhand the ways of the world without realizing that they are dead and deaf to the voice of God. They're not being led by God. They're being led by the culture of this world and the prince of the air. The spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, as we've looked at so many times. Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. And so the blind lead the blind. They both fall into a ditch. Again, Paul is showing the church in Ephesus that our walk, our daily living is supposed to look different and sound different and feel different. And this is not driven, as we looked at last week, as as Paul actually broke down some of the things that we should no longer do. In order to take up the way that we should be walking. And and, and this is not driven by the law. He says, if you're a thief, you should no longer steal if you're a Christian. But instead, with your own hands, do honest work so that you may share with all those in need. Now, he could very easily have said, hey, if you are a thief and you're stealing, please remember that one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not steal. But Paul doesn't refer to the law in, in motivating this changed life that you're supposed to live. No, what does he use as a motivation? Well, the fact that you are now a new creation in Christ, you have a different identity, you're a believer, you're not a thief any longer. But he says, so that you may share with those who are in need. In other words, our motivation now is love. It's that we as believers would walk in love even towards unbelievers, even towards, especially towards those that don't know God. Jesus said, I didn't come into this world to condemn the world. I came that it may be saved through me. God's heart isn't to destroy sinners, but to save them from destruction. And we as the church are the ones who are supposed to live different lives so that we can reflect the light of God to the people that don't know Him and that they can rise up and be awakened from their sleep. This is why your living matters. Your life matters. Your decisions matter. This is not a law-based thing. Oh, if you're a Christian, you can't do that and you can do this. And, you know, it's not, this is not law-keeping. This is purpose. Come on, how many of you know that, that you, and I'm trying to think of an example, but you could, for example, use foul language in your home? There, let me put it this way. There are unbelievers who believe that there's nothing wrong with foul language. It's just power, power language. It's just power words. So, you know, it's not something that they would, would refrain from. But when they have kids, they stop speaking like that for the most part, most of them. Why? Because now their responsibility is no longer just on their own lives. And whether or not you can use a bad word, whether or not, do you have the freedom to say a bad word? Hey, it's it's your life. You can say bad words if you want to. But when you have kids, do you really want them to grow up saying those same words? All of a sudden it's different because you're not just living for yourself. You've got a purpose. You've You've got a job to do. You've got a responsibility. And that's what Paul is saying to the church here. We walk in love, not because it's some stupid law that we're trying to follow, but because you have got a purpose. Walk worthy of your calling with which you have been called. It's a bigger job to do. We're here to reflect light to this world that doesn't know Jesus. And so our daily living looks different, driven by love. Which is why in Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 2, right in the middle of this passage of all these imperatives, 40 imperatives that he shares in the last three chapters, uh, Paul, in the middle of that, in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, the word beloved children, it sounds too, um, what would the right, be, the right word be? Um, too soft, for lack of a better term, right? It's too squishy. It really, that's really not the right word. But, but, but what he's saying is as, as children that are loved. Not just beloved children. No, children that are loved. You are loved by God. Therefore, imitate God. How do we imitate God? Well, what did he do? He walked in love towards us. It says, and walk in love as Christ loved us. And what did he do? Because he loved us. Well, he gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice. Well, wow, now your life, as you begin to live sacrificially, actually has the ability to impact the lives of others. Just as Jesus lived sacrificially, gave himself up, and that sacrifice he was doing because he wanted to save every single one of us in this room today. That the fact that he did that was a fragrant offering to God. It pleased God. Why? Because God loves people, and so he loved the fact that his son would walk in obedience and so by Reach and save the lost. And so in that same way, we can walk in in, in love towards our world and towards each other in a way that pleases God because it reveals God to our world. And God wants people to know Him. He wants to make Himself known through us. And so we find in all of this the death of indifference. The death of indifference. That's what we're talking about this morning. No longer asleep, no longer unaware, no longer cut off, no longer hard-hearted, but, but indifference itself dies in the life of a Christian. I, I, I struggle to trust, and I know everybody's on a journey, but I struggle to trust a Christian who doesn't display some form of passion. Just personally. Because I know that it's supposed to awaken some things in you. It's supposed to do something. You're supposed to just, it doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you just share every single post that Anchor puts out there, but something in you just says, I I just got to be a part of this. It's got to awaken something. I'm sure many of you have heard that Elon Musk is in the process of purchasing Twitter at the moment. If you haven't, there's some news for you. And, um, And so there's quite a lot of you know, talk about him at the moment. He's become quite a controversial figure, even though he's just a South African boy from Pretoria and um, and also happens to be worth just over two hundred and thirty billion billion. I try to actually, I, I put two hundred and thirty billion billion into the currency converter to try and figure out. And I, I honestly couldn't tell what the number was. And I didn't know, I think what it was, Um, when I worked it out, was uh, 364 trillion rand. He better not move back to South Africa because we would literally have to empty the Reserve Bank to give him his money, right? If he converts all his dollars to rands, South Africa's bankrupt at that point. Just a boy from Pretoria, 60 kilometers north of here. So recently, Elon's satellite company, Starlink, has been providing... Uh, internet connectivity to the Ukrainians busy fighting in the war with Russia at the moment. And what this has brought about is some death threats from the Russians and from others on Elon's life. And so there was this little Twitter exchange that I picked up on that I thought was really interesting. I thought I'd share it with you this morning. Um, So Elon just jokingly tweeted, if I die under mysterious circumstances, it's been nice knowing you right? Just because like I'm giving internet connectivity to the Ukrainians. A lot of people aren't happy about that. And so if I die and, you know, it seems mysterious, that's what happened. And so somebody, and I'm not sure if they were a Christian or not, but I just thought it was interesting, responded uh, by replying with these words. He wrote, you won't die before your day, Elon. Anyhow, you are slash were a unique figure in this world. I don't know why they said were, he's still here. Um, Maybe just in case he died by the time the tweet reached him, you know, like he says, I'm only wondering one thing. As a genius, haven't you, haven't you found out that there is a great creator of this world yet? If you did, make sure you confess this before your last heartbeat. Bless you. And so Elon respond, responded to this tweet. And to me, his response was typical of our generation. There's a sadness in this, in this response that I want to talk about. Elon respon- responded, Thank you for the blessing. So he's not, he's not uh, negative towards what this guy is saying. He's not like in days gone by where you'd have the militant atheists. They were known as new atheists. That, 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 they don't just, they're not just indifferent. They were kind of militantly, aggressively against faith, trying to break it down, trying to break down the idea of God. But, but this is different. Elon says, thank you for the blessing, but I'm okay with going to hell. If that is indeed my destination, since the vast majority of all humans ever born will be there. What I I think just must break the heart of God, we spoke about grieving the Holy Spirit last week, and I think this is one of those things that must grieve God incredibly, is that Elon isn't denying the existence of hell. He's not even denying the fact. That most people in the world will probably end up there, if we're honest. He's right about those two things. Heaven and hell are real places. God is real. And and the majority of people that reject God will end there as the destination of their choice. But what struck me about that tweet is not that Elon is is saying, yeah, I want to go to hell. He's just saying, I'm probably going to end up there. What struck me about this tweet was the indifference of it all. He's just indifferent to it. You know, if somebody's fighting against you, against something, at least they have some passion. At least they're in the fight. At least you can can still convince them. But when somebody has checked out and become apathetic to whether or not they will spend eternity in hell, that's almost like a next level. And I feel like this is the generation that we are entering into right now that's possibly worse than any that has gone before because we have entered a time where people are no longer even trying to disprove the existence of God passionately or the existence of a place of eternal judgment. But instead, they're just saying, we don't care either way. Whatever happens, happens. Indifference. Indifference. Ephesians 4, 17 to 18, we looked at last week. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. And what I realized in just seeing that tweet and seeing that scripture together is that futility is the breeding ground of apathy. Because if nothing matters, then why would you care? Why would you care what anybody wants to do? And our world has reached that state of apathy that no matter what somebody wants to declare as the truth over their own lives, we're just like, sure, you do that. If people, if people self-identify as a petting zoo animal, sure, man, you're a duck, go for it, you're fine. We're not even fighting for truth anymore. We're not even standing up for it. We're just saying, whatever you want, have it. If nothing matters, why should I care? Hey, let's abort babies. Sure, whatever you want. Let's destroy the nuclear family. Yeah, sounds good. Nothing really matters. They are alienated from the life of God. So asleep that they cannot even recognize how the current of this world is sending them straight off the cliff, straight over the waterfall, how they are be, gonna be plunged into destruction as a result of, of complete indifference. In Revelation 3, verse 14 to 16, we see an angel speaking to the apostle, uh, the apostle John and the angel of the church, or, or, or Jesus, sorry, speaking to the apostle John and saying, in verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. So this is Jesus speaking to churches, speaking to believers. And he says, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, Jesus says, you are neither cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Be one of the two. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's a grievance that this will does towards God when it displays lukewarmness. Dispassionate, apathetic. The Laodiceans were neither cold nor hot in relation to God, just Lukewarm. And there's actually a reason why this would have been an impactful uh, illustration to the church in Laodicea. Because both hot and cold water have useful purposes. Hot water has the ability to cleanse and to purify. Cold water can refresh and enliven. But lukewarm water is useless. It can affect no change. It carries no value. And the Laodiceans understood this. Analogy: because their city drinking water came from an aqueduct from a spring that was six miles south of their city. And this aqueduct delivered water to their city that was lukewarm. Coming out of that that, that spring, it arrived at the city lukewarm. And if you drank the lukewarm water, you would get physically sick. It would make you nauseous. So they totally understood this. Not far from there, there were baths of hot water, hot water springs that people would would bathe in. And that was useful. And if they could take the water and cool it down, it was useful. But when it's lukewarm, the only thing it does is nauseate you. Is make you sick. Jesus, I would rather have you hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Not indifferent. It was nauseating. And so Paul moves into Ephesians 5 saying, We're not to imitate the world in or or take on the temperature of the world in its lukewarmness. Instead, we are to imitate God walking in the fervency of his love towards our world. This world matters. What's happening in the lives of people matters. Whether or not people serve Jesus matters. It matters eternally. And ultimately, so we have thoughts about it. We have opinions about it. We have actions regarding it. We take a stand when we need to. We speak out when we need to. We stand up when we need to because it matters because it's people's lives. And if you're a believer today, you believe that every single life is ordained by God and precious and therefore we cannot be apathetic about it. The first major difference between what the world believes and what we as a church as Christians believe is the way we define love. Now, the thing about defining love, do you know, what, you know, you ask the question, what is love? Did you ever have the, those cartoons, the what is love cartoons? You know, a long stem, red rose, whatever. That's what love is. You know, love is making your spouse a cup of coffee in the morning. No, th- those might just be expressions of love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt. No, okay, I'll stop. But let me let you in on a secret of how our world motivates its idolatry. This is how it does it. How it justifies its disregard of truth. It's, it's knowingly disregarding truth. And it justifies it in this way. By simply redefining words or terms to make them say something else or mean something else. I remember sitting with somebody and saying, that's not what the Bible says though. And they said to me, I don't read my Bible the way you do. And my follow-up question was, motivated then? Which scripture are you basing your opinion on? And they left the conversation. So that's the thing. It's like, I will redefine this book to make it say what I think I want it to say. That's the tactic. Redefine language. That's the deconstructivist Wokeism that we're living in in this world is that, no, everything else that was ever said, every other truth that was ever declared was simply an attempt to grab power. And so in order to dismantle or, dis or deceit those that are in power, we will break down and deconstruct and we'll do it by changing the meaning of language. So we can turn everything into nothing. A primordial soup that we can then from some, somehow raise or, or, or create a better world from. So everything gets, gets just lumped into that whole situation. Everything needs to be redefined. In fact, they've done it with gender. They say gender is just a social construct. So we'll switch that up. Ask any person who believes in this ideology to define what the word "woman" means, they cannot tell you. It's not a definite we can't tell you what the, what it is to be a woman. But the same people fight for a woman's right to choose, but what is it? You don't even know what it is. G. K. Chesterton, who was an incredible mind and a prophet in the early 1900s, wrote this. He was a prophet without knowing that he was a prophet. He wrote, We shall soon be in a world in which a man may be held down for saying that two and two make four. In which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure. And hang a man for maddening a mob with the news that the grass is green. 120 years later, that's exactly what's happening. If you say a man is not a woman, you could be in real trouble. You could be in real trouble. Now you can be persecuted through this deconstructive cancel culture with the intent to redefine truth. So what has this world done with the fact, the truth of love? How does it define that world? Well, whatever makes you feel good. That's the world's definition. The way that they express that is love is love. Oh, love is love. But what is love? No, love is love. Whatever, you, whatever it is for you, love is love. We had one of our staff members went and bought a, a notebook innocently. It said, love is love on the front of the rainbow. I'm like, Why are you using that notebook? No, because love is love. <laughs> she had no idea. She had no idea what it meant. But this is codified language to say, we re- if, that, if love is love had a full title, it would be, we reject the biblical definition of love in favor of how we choose to redefine the word. Whatever makes you feel good. Whatever fulfills your desire for personal expression, even if that expression is sinful. So so love is love and will destroy you if you don't agree. The problem with redefining love is that it's not a concept, but a person. It's not a concept, but a person. You can say what you want about me as a person. You can have any opinion that you would like of me as a person but ultimately you cannot redefine who I am because I am who I am. I can have any opinion of you. I can make up any words to describe you, but my words are just opinions because the fact of who you are is something that was decided before the world began. And so you can write any thesis on what love actually is. But the fact of the matter is, there's one thing that cannot be deconstructed. There's one thing that cannot be redefined. There's one thing that cannot be repackaged. And it's the creator of heaven and earth, God himself. And he doesn't just have love. He is love. So you cannot redefine love according to your whims and wishes because love is not a concept, it's not an ideology, it's not a philosophy. It is a living, breathing person happens to be the creator of us all. He is love. We can't redefine that. That's the one thing you cannot deconstruct. You know when you try and deconstruct God, you know what you do? You dismantle yourself. That's all you're doing. You dismantle yourself. And so, it doesn't change. No matter how we how the world defines love, doesn't change it. One John four verse eight says, "But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love." That's who He is. It's not what He has; it's who He is, and He's not up for redefinition. So, if God is love and loves us, what did He do that we must imitate? What did he do as the true and ultimate embodiment of who he is, love itself? What did God, who is love, the truest definition of love, what did he do in expression of this love? How did he walk it out? How does he tell us to walk it out? Well, it says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he gave himself up As an offering, which means that true love, Christian love, biblical love, is not self-serving, but self-sacrificial. It gives itself up. I give myself up for you. You give yourself up for me. We give ourselves up for the world. We forgive when we have been wronged. Because it's not about me. It's about me reflecting the love of God. We live in the way that Jesus lived. Self-sacrificially, we become an offering that is poured out for the lives of others. And that's why Paul continues in Ephesians 5 to speak about the things that no longer fits our lives. Like a pair of pants you had as a kid that you're now trying to put on as an adult. It's just no longer fitting. In verse 3, he says this, I'm gonna go through this quickly. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So he mentions three things here and then he doubles down on them again. Number one, sexual immorality. And what he's talking about here is that indifference where in our world, in our culture, sex is just, it's inconsequential. It's a physical act nothing more you see the world doesn't value sex higher than the church does it values it less it says it doesn't matter but the reason why we as the church and why the bible says that there is a proper context within which sexual fulfillment is supposed to take place that it's a beautiful thing that God created to be used in the right place is because we have a higher view of sex than the average person walking in the street it's not just personal fulfillment It's not just getting some of what I'd like to have. No, it's actually a way of worship. It's a way of honoring and connecting with your spouse. We have a higher view. So we don't compromise on that. Paul goes on and he says, not only this, but also impurity. And so he's not just talking about the way that people actually conduct themselves in regards to sex, but he's talking about the whole spirit of it, the crassness of it, the lewdness that our world has taken on around the sacred act of marriage in in, in sex. They've just become so indifferent to it that that it means nothing and, and the entire spirit that surrounds it is just crass and lewd. I'll never forget I was sitting on a plane coming home from George in the Western Cape and there was a golf group or a group of men that had been on a golf tour to Fancourt, one of the top golf courses down there in George. And, and they came onto the plane, about probably about 20 of them and loud. And uh, they probably had a few beers before they got on. And they were you know, just obnoxious, just as you would expect a group of men on a golf tour to be. But by the end of the flight, I felt like my ears were bleeding by how crass they were. And at one point, I'll never forget I almost said something, man, I was so close, but I don't want to get into a fight with 20 drunk men. But the one guy said, oh, Johnny's also getting divorced now. He said, boys, we're dropping like flies. Maybe we should get a group lawyer. And they all laughed. It's the indifference. That's a heartbreaking statement. All I wanted, the guy who said it was right behind me, I wanted to turn around and said, aren't you sad? It's tragic. It's tragic. It's tragic that this kind of brokenness is something that we would laugh about, that we would be so indifferent. And then notice in that scripture, it's five, three, even though it says a different verse on the screen. He doesn't say, and covetousness. He doesn't say sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. He says, all covetousness. To covet is to yearn to possess something, especially something belonging to another. And so he says, all covetousness, in other words, saying what people who, and you know, why does Paul single out this one thing about sexual immorality? Because what he's saying is that what people want is not really sex, nor the spirit of sex, but they crave fulfillment and love. They crave the love that they cannot get. And the closest they can get to it is that experience of, of sex. It gives them a sense of satisfaction, but Paul says, this kind of thinking mustn't even be named among you as believers. It's not proper for the people of Christ, for the children of God. It's not right. It's not fitting because you don't need it. You're fulfilled in Christ. You're fulfilled. I'll never forget. I was in my matric year, and I went to a a rugby bra, and there were some girls from our school there as well, and I never had a beer, I never drank um, anything, it, just, it was just my conviction and I, I stood there and, and I remember I was in a conversation with a group of friends and talking about rugby and this girl walks up, she looks straight at me, weirdly and awkwardly while I'm having a conversation, I looked over at her and she just, without thinking about anybody around her, she says, Adrian, why are you so good? And I was like, well, you know, it's just a lot of training and practice and realized she wasn't referring to rugby. But this was a moment for her. It wasn't like something that she was trying to be clever. She was really, really, it's like nothing else matters. I need to figure out what's going on here. Something's different. And And she followed that up by saying, why don't you need to drink? Now She didn't say, why don't you drink? She said, why don't you need it? And I just looked at her and I said, oh, yeah. you know, I don't want to do a whole sermon right there. I actually found her later and spoke to her more about it. But, but I just said, because I'm fulfilled. Now, I can have a beer if I, if I feel like having a beer, but I'm not fulfilled by a beer. I don't need it. It's a difference. It's covetousness. That's why our world is as immoral as it is. So Paul carries on and he says this. He says, Let no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. They've made, they're worshiping something else, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. It shows that if, if you're still needing those things that you haven't truly come to believe in Jesus, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon those of disobedience. Therefore, they're asleep. So do not become partakers with them. Do not follow those who are asleep. You cannot have two gods. I want to take five minutes to wrap this up this morning, because there's something so powerful that Paul gets to here. Ephesians 5.8, he says, For at one time, listen to this, You were darkness. I think that's the crux right there. Not that you had darkness, not that you dwelt in darkness. No, at one time you were darkness. You were darkness itself. But now, Christian, believer, you don't have light. You are light. You are light in Christ. You were darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. So therefore, walk as children of light. That's powerful. In Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love, there it is, with which he loved us, even when we were dead, you were darkness in our trespasses, made us alive, light, together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And so the difference between The gospel and religion is that religion will say, God's going to light up your path and show you how you should walk. But the gospel says that God has actually made you light. So that your very presence doesn't just light up your path, but lights the paths of others. It begins to reveal truth to our world in a powerful way. He goes on in verse nine, he says, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, listen to this, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is Light. This is incredibly interesting here. Don't misread the scripture. Anything that becomes visible doesn't just have light. It becomes light. Anything that's visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, 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 O oh sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So I found it interesting that Paul says we should expose works of darkness but shouldn't even name them. How do you do that? Because you know how Christians have misappropriated this verse? They go, oh, oh, oh. So let me tell you, I'm going to expose what you're doing that's wrong right now. I'm going to expose you. No, the Bible says I must expose your works. I'm going to come here. Let me expose some works. You know why some people, when they say hello to me, they say hello like this. Oh, hey. And avoid me. Because they think I want to expose them. That I. Sometimes it's the only time they pray, please God, don't tell the pastor the things I've done, you know? This is not how we expose. We don't expose by condemning people and calling out their sins. No, what this verse is saying is that when our lives become light itself, our very presence in a situation, in a group of friends, in a home, in a workplace, will begin to show the difference between what is true and what is false. It will begin to reveal by the very fact that you are there living the life that God has called you to live. It will begin to expose the dishonest uh, lies and deceitfulness, the desires, the sinfulness that others walk in without you having to say a word. Because you are light. You were darkness, now you're light. And when you walk in it, what does it do? It exposes the lie that people have walked in the sin that they harbor. And what does that do? It makes it visible and it leads them to repentance. Your very life, if you live worthy of your calling, is gonna make people walk up to you and say, why don't you need what I need to feel fulfilled? And your response to them will be, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. That's our message. So this whole passage, people turn it into a condemnation of sinners. No, this is saying that we as believers walk differently so that we can love and save sinners. So that our very lives will preach the gospel. How beautiful. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. So Christ will shine on you. 2 Peter 3.9, the the heart of God is, is expressed by Peter when he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to return as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Beautiful. I remember when I was growing up, As a normal teenager, I would not want to get up in the mornings. And what my dad would always do is he'd walk into my room and open all of the curtains. So frustrating. Why do dads do that? I do it with my boys now. If I didn't get up after that, he'd tickle my feet, pull off the blankets. Just dads. But you know, that's what God is saying. That when we walk into a situation, the way we live opens up the curtains for people, allows the light to stream in, and the very light of Christ shining in their context now wakes them from the dead so that they can live a life as fulfilled and satisfied and purpose-filled as yours. That's what we get to do. That's why it matters. Why does it matter? Why do I have to do these things? Because there's a purpose for your life. So Ephesians 5, 15 to 16, Paul says, Look carefully then, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Think about your actions. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Man, this is powerful. This whole chapter is about evangelism. It's about our witness to the world. Indifference, therefore, isn't fitting. For a believer, it doesn't fit. Faith in Christ is the death of indifference. We care about the world because God loves every single person and we are to shine the light that we have in Christ in how we live every day so that those who are asleep will be awakened and will experience the salvation of our Lord. Amen? man. I could go on, but I'm going to stop here. Won't you stand with me this morning?